This is Cinephile. This is incredible. One of the best actors alive here on the studio, Billy Bob Thornton. Great to see you, man. The point of good acting is that you're supposed to be real. Be real. Great to have here on Cinephile Ice Cube, my new best friend. Yeah, yeah, man. Here's the man himself, Robert De Niro. Who can tell what a reaction will be to a film that nobody knows? The most famous person that follows me on Twitter, Will Arnett, <laughs> is in the house. Yeah, I always tell people who said the bar low. Vigo Mortensen. It's one of those movies that when it finishes, you go, now what's going to happen? Big guest, Mark Wahlberg. Ted was one of those pivotal moments in my career, like Boogie Nights, where, you know, the subject matter just seems so ridiculous and absurd, yet when reading the script, you know, you never want to put it down. Cinephile. Cinephile. The Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. Oh, man. I just got finished saying how you have to be on point vocally as Jim Brockmeyer, and I completely punted that one. It gives us the kind of hero a lot of us fell in love with back in those 12 cent days of truth, justice, and the American way, and the kind of movie we haven't seen since Christopher Reeve first flew into our lives. That's from Stephen Witte, film critic for the New York Star Ledger, talking about Wonder Woman, one of the films that we'll be reviewing. Today, Good to have you back with us here on Cinephile. This breaking news story I'm reading, I'm laughing at. Elizabeth Banks accepted an award from the nonprofit group Women in Film and expressed her frustration of the lack of female stories in the marketplace. Said, quote, I went to Indiana Jones and Jaws and every movie Steven Spielberg ever made. And by the way, he's never made a movie with a female lead. Sorry, Steven. I don't mean to call your ass out, but it's true. Actually, of the 30 feature films Spielberg has directed, one did feature a female protagonist. That was 1985's The Color Purple. Someone in the audience pointed this out to Banks, and the star moved on. <laughs> Let's move on. 88% Rotten Tomatoes, $155 million worldwide. Color Purple, Elizabeth? Uh, yeah, anyways. Uh, article went on to mention Always, which is actually one of uh, Spielberg's bombs. Holly Hunter co-starred in that with Richard Dreyfuss, if you want to co-lead. Uh, Sugarland Express, Goldie Hawn, back in 74. So he's had a few, but hey, Elizabeth Banks has some egg in her face. Great to have you with us here in Cinephile. As always, give us some love on iTunes, rate and review. That's how we keep going, and so we appreciate all the love that you give us. The last time we were here on Cinephile, Dan Stanzik took a blowtorch to Robert De Niro as the comedian. A lot of people enjoyed that for good reason. It was very well written, very funny. Although, Dan, can you even things up a little bit? Have you seen The Wizard of Lies? Can you at least admit to Nero's brilliance? I have brilliance? not seen The Wizard of Lies. Yet. All right. No, I apologize. Well, look for a written review of The Wizard of Lies next time so Dan can even things up. Wizard of Lies right now, if you go to goldderby.com, that's where I'm one of the experts there predicting the Emmy Awards. And Robert De Niro right now is neck and neck. How loaded is this category? Best actor in a movie, miniseries. Riz Ahmed, currently the favorite, seven to two for the night of. De Niro coming on strong at four to one for the Wizard of Lies. Totoro in the mix at like seven to one, but awfully tough to predict who's going to win that award. Although Wizard of Lies right now the favorite for movie and Levinson for director. The Crown is getting a lot of uh, love there. It's obviously going to do really well. So Emmy nominations coming up once again. GoldDerby.com. If you go to experts, you can see all of my selections there. Also, before we get into the reviews of new films, I did want to mention, you know, I love the films on TCM. I saw The Maltese Falcon again. I hadn't seen it in so long. Who killed Thursby? I mean, what a great movie. We've talked before about Casablanca and Bogart as its best, but Maltese Falcon, amazing script, uh, wonderful cast of characters, in many ways like Casablanca, because you've got Sidney Greenstreet there playing Gutman, the fat man, who has one of my favorite movie lines. You'll find that I'm a man who likes talking to a man who likes to talk. Peter Lorre, also in the film. Of course, he was also in Casablanca. 
Peter Lorre just always creepy with those googly eyes. Uh, but it's Bogart's show. Nobody better than a fedora. Fantastic ending where he uh, confronts the the femme fatale because he's uh, you know so upset at what she's done to his partner. If you haven't seen the Maltese Falcon, check it out on TCM. It is an absolute classic. As far as uh, what's coming up today, people have been asking for a Scorsese story about a film, so I went back and saw it. I hadn't seen it in 20 years. It's one of the movies that I, I least like of Scorsese's, of his oeuvre. So I watched it again, and I liked it. So sometimes, you know, when you're 18, you don't really understand movies, and then when you're 38, you go, oh, I understand what he was doing here. So I'm going to discuss that film, which was definitely different from Marty. We've got some streaming selections, and our actor's showcase will be Johnny Depp, one of the more talented actors of his generation. And coming up as our special guest is Timothy Spall, the English actor, and how great is Ben Lyons? I texted Ben immediately because Timothy Spall, to me, is a terrific actor. If you're a cinephile, you know who he is, but does not have major name recognition. So immediately I texted Ben. So we got Timothy Spall coming up. Not only does he respond enthusiastically, but sends a picture of himself and Timothy Spall from the Cannes Film Festival. <laughs> then follows up with a picture of he and LeVar Ball, the only guy in my phone who can send a picture with Timothy Spall and LeVar Ball. Timothy Spall's a new film called The Journey, which is about the IRA and how um, that ended up dissolving, how peace was, was reached there. If you don't know his work, he's also really famous for the Harry Potter films and his association with the British filmmaker Mike Lee. So all that more coming up. We kick it off, though, with Wonder Woman. And listen, it's got rave reviews, 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. It has been a huge hit, $103 million box office opening, which is a record for a female-directed film. And it's great to see that success for Patty Jenkins. She's the director. The only movie she's made was Monster, which is a terrific film. If you haven't seen it, won Charlize Theron an Oscar. I was Roger Ebert's, I think, best picture of that year. It was amazing how she just took Charlize Theron, who's a statuesque beauty, and... Uh, for lack of a better term, uglied her up to play Eileen Warnos, the serial killer. I mean, it was just such a dark movie, and, and Patty Jenkins did an amazing job with it. So quite a, quite an about-face to go from Monster to Wonder Woman, but a real challenge behind the scenes to get it made because you don't have a lot of female directors in Hollywood, unfortunately. For every Catherine Bigelow who did The Hurt Locker or Jane Campion who did The Piano, you don't often get female directors of blockbusters. So props to, to Patty Jenkins for making what has been a huge success at the box office and critically acclaimed, but I've got to be honest. I thought it was just all right. And I had somebody tweet me recently saying that they find some of my movie reviews in Cinephile to be glib. So I'll keep this one rather plain spoken. I just found it awfully boring. All right. It's two hours and 23 minutes. And with 15 minutes of trailers for a comic book movie, two hours and 40 minutes, I just found it plodding. And there's an awful lot of exposition. Uh, the story, for those that are unaware, Gal Gadot, who is rather striking, as I tweeted in my review, Gal Gadot, who is striking, and the action sequences, which are equally striking, cannot overcome the Hollywood hokum, which makes the movie feel rather ho-hum. She's beautiful, though, and she's the princess of the Amazons. There's a great opening action sequence, and then a pilot crash lands. That's played by Chris Pine, and he starts telling her about what's going on in the real world, because, of course, they're sequestered and not aware of World War One and the Nazis and all the rest of it. So she agrees to fight the war to end all wars, and eventually she becomes Wonder Woman and uses all of her powers. So I guess the reason why people like it a lot is because there is a lot of exposition, and uh, Michael Kay, voice of the Yankees, sent me a DM. He liked it a lot because he said, I just thought there was a stronger story than you normally get in a comic book movie, you know, based on real events and the authenticity of it. And I suppose if you're well-versed in Wonder Woman and the comic book ethos, that maybe you will agree with that, but i got to be honest with you. If you don't really have a dog in the race when it comes to Wonder Woman, I just think you're going to find the movie awfully boring. And um, I'm going to get two Maple Leafs, which means it's decent. People say, why didn't you crush it? I said, well, I didn't crush it. I thought it was all right. Gal Gadot, like I said, she's, she's terrific as the lead. Chris Pine is fine. 
the action sequences, especially the opening very good, but I really thought the movie dragged. Uh, so I'm not crazy about Wonder Woman, but it is obviously a huge hit right now, one of the more unexpected hits at the box office. The movie, though, that I'm really excited to talk about today is called Obit, and that is a documentary which is fantastic. I urge you to check it out. It's playing in 30 theaters right now in America. And props to our friend Mark Simon. Nobody loves documentaries and nobody loves cinephile more than Mark. So he had brought it to my attention. I had already heard of it, but uh, I just hadn't had a chance to go see it. So he said he met the director, Vanessa Gould, and he passed along her email. So I emailed Vanessa, and she sent me the film right away. And I said, perfect. So I was able to knock it out. And it's excellent. And if you hear Obit, you go, wait, the people who write about dead people? I'm like, yeah, it's about the New York Times Obit section. You think... What a morose, morbid occupation. But instead, as the film thrillingly brings to life, it's a wonderful occupation because what you do is you offer living testament to someone's deeds. And that doesn't mean that you camouflage the negative. You try to give as honest and authentic an account of their life. But as the movie shows and you see the reporters digging up and calling the next of kin and those who are left behind, it's storytelling. You say, all right, how am I going to tell the life of Dan Stanzik? What, what were the highs? What were the lows? And with, with really famous people, you obviously have a lot more leeway, but it's even more challenging with somebody who may not be notable, maybe notable for one or two things, an inventor, a scientist, and you get a thousand words to write it and away you go. And it's amazing how, and we used to do this, I used to work at TSN, which is the Canadian equivalent of ESPN. When I was a production assistant, we would have, uh, it's very morbid, but you know, these, these death pieces for like, Muhammad Ali and Wayne Gretzky, and I'm sure we have them here at ESPN. Like when famous athletes die, all right, Jack Nicholas, we got the obit ready to go. And same thing for the New York Times. Um, Bruce Weber, who's the star of the film for me, he's great in it. He says, yeah, because I've got a Stephen Sondheim obit ready to go. Like I've got a few others ready to go. Like when, when, when people get to their 70s and 80s particularly, because you start hearing about failing health, trust me, we crank up the obit. Now, a few times you've been caught off guard, and he said Michael Jackson was one of those. Because we found out Michael Jackson died at one, and we're like, oh, man. And he goes, it took like a team of obit writers five hours to cull together the best of Michael Jackson and try to give tribute to his life. And then, and when you can pull that together, Dan knows that, working here in the sports industry, it's like breaking news. When you try to rally the troops together, you really have to use teamwork and cumulative force to do justice to the story. And what can be more important than offering justice to a person's last words, like the last images of how they'll be remembered? And maybe for some, I don't know, maybe you don't view the print industry the way I do. You think New York Times obits is, is overrated, but I think it's, it's amazing. And it's so sacrosanct. And Vanessa also sent me, as I mentioned, Bruce Weber, she said his favorite obit, because I mentioned this to you as a sports journalist, is about Yogi Berra. So here's the one that Bruce wrote for Yogi Berra. Yogi Berra, Yankee who built his stardom 90% on skill and half on wit, dies at 90. Like the headline alone is great. Yogi Berra, one of baseball's greatest catchers and characters, who as a player was a mainstay of 10 Yankees championship teams and as a manager led both the Yankees and the Mets to the World Series, but who may be more widely known as an ungainly but lovable cultural figure, inspiring a cartoon character and issuing a seemingly limitless supply of unwittingly witty epigrams known as Yogiisms, died on Tuesday. He was 90. That's a hell of an opening paragraph there for Yogi Berra. Uh, and then it goes on to mention all these things because you, you have to balance, all right, how much do I talk about Yogi, the incredible player, but then the Yogiisms? And then Bruce does an amazing job of it. Universally known simply as Yogi, probably the second most recognizable nickname in sports. Even Yogi was not the babe. Barrow was not exactly an unlikely hero, but he was often portrayed as one. An all-star for 15 consecutive seasons whose skills were routinely underestimated. A well-built, appealingly open-faced man whose physical appearance was often belittled. And a prolific winner not to mention a successful leader whose intellect was a target of humor, if not outright derision. I mean, these these guys are 
Top of the line. That's upper echelon writing. Uh, of course, one of my favorite actors of all time and my top five favorites of all time, and they mentioned the shock and dismay when they heard that Philip Seymour Hoffman passed away. Uh, they had to pull together that obit, which, of course, had not been written previously. This is by Bruce Weber as well. Philip Seymour Hoffman, actor of depth, dies at 46. That's the headline. Philip Seymour Hoffman, perhaps the most ambitious and widely admired American actor of his generation, who gave three-dimensional nuance to a wide range of sidekicks, villains, and leading men on screen and embraced some of theater's most burdensome roles on Broadway, died on Sunday at an apartment in Greenwich Village he was renting as an office. He was 46. Next two paragraphs go into the, the drug use and a, a quote, a stocky, often sleepy-looking man with blonde, generally uncombed hair who favored the rumpled clothes more associated with an out-of-work actor than a star. Mr. Hoffman did not cut the traditional figure of a leading man, though he was more than capable of leading roles. <laughs> what a perfect way to describe Philip Seymour Hoffman. He then goes into specific films. He mentions Death of a Salesman, which was one of his last major roles. Uh, this I love. Studying the highlights of Mr. Hoffman's prolific work life, which included directing and acting in off-Broadway shows for the Labyrinth Theater Company, a New York City troupe, which he served for a time as artistic director, undervalues his versatility and his willingness, rare in a celebrity actor, to explore the depths of not just creepy or villainous characters, but especially unattractive ones. He was a chameleon of especially vivid colors and roles that call for him to be unappealing. I was just watching this documentary about Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's available on Netflix. It's called uh, Too Young to Die. And his mother talked about the film Happiness. If you haven't seen it, Philip Seymour Hoffman plays a character who's obsessed with making dirty phone calls and then pleasuring himself. And he was really worried what his mom was going to think about the movie. But when she saw it, she said, and this is a great description of Philip Seymour Hoffman, she said he gave voice to the voiceless. Like his characters were not the warm and friendly types. They were not the heroic leading men. But, but Phil would portray the people that are often marginalized and overlooked. Obit has many um, sequences like that of people reading their actual obits, but fascinating behind-the-scenes inner workings of the New York Times obit section. I highly encourage people to check it out. Dan is a political guy, one of the best sequences. Bruce Weber talks with a guy who was close to Kennedy and, um, you know, how he died. And he's, he's really challenged because he goes, you know, I'm not mentioning who he is until like three paragraphs in. He talks about Kennedy and the televised debate and how that won the election for Kennedy over Nixon, even though many thought – Nixon came across as smarter and more shrewd on the issues, but Kennedy, of course, looked better because it was on television, and Nixon was sweating and looked a little disheveled, and this was the guy who applied the makeup to Kennedy and altered history and helped win the election. And, oh, by the way, he passed away, and here's some other things he did. What did you think of Obit, Dan? I loved it. I'm, I'm glad you sent it my way. I, I liked how you kind of nailed it at the beginning. They said obits have almost nothing to do with death and everything to do with life. Like you hear it's a tough barrier to get into the movie. It's like, oh, my God, obit times whatever. Right. But it's not macabre. It's not morose. It's, it is like a happy, happy thing. Like the subjects are all happy. I, and I love how like Philip Seymour Hoffman's obvious. He's going to get an obit. Right. Michael Jackson's obvious. He's going to get an obit. But that guy, the first TV advisor to a presidential candidate like he had an impact so they always talk about like what impact did you have on the world and they say how people are always calling them and saying oh my dad did this my uncle did this right no bit and so they have to determine whether or not someone's life had an impact and sometimes they say yes it did and then they assign a word length to someone's life it's fat, <laughs> like that's 800 words like you have a thousand words that's how important that person was I thought it was super interesting, especially if you like journalism and you like the media or have some interest in history, you should absolutely check it out. Another person that they mentioned is the person that was driving the plane that dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. Yeah. Like, like these are people you would never know their names, 
but they had an impact on the world and they kind of see it as their role to be like, hey, this person died and this is what they did in the world. You should remember at least what they did and hear something personal about that person. It's an amazing hook and an amazing way to uh, craft a story and a testament to a person. I'm giving it three and a half Maple Leafs. I highly encourage you to check it out. Best documentary of the year so far. Thanks again to Vanessa Gould, the director for sending it to us, and, of course, our buddy Mark Simon, who was all over it as well. A couple more movies for you. This is a real disappointment, Wakefield. This is 0 for 2 now for our buddy Brian Cranston. I did not uh, care for his previous outing with James Franco, Why Him, and now Wakefield. So it's Robin Swicord's adaptation of E.L. Doctorow's short story. So she not only adapted the script, but also directed it. And it is a story of a thoroughly unpleasant man, businessman played by Brian Cranston, taking the subway home and gets home late. And rather than going up to see his wife, who he has a rather unhappy marriage with, and see his kids who he feels disconnected with his two daughters, he goes up to his attic and he just wants to take a minute to himself and just lay down and kind of just let the day wash over himself. And then he doesn't get up. And then he just stays there, and through a pair of binoculars, he observes his wife putting the dinner away, and already he's mad that he's like, why would she put the dinner away? Why wouldn't she at least wait for me a little bit? And so frustrated and just demoralized by life, Cranston playing this character, Wakefield, says, I'm not, I'm not going on the bed tonight. I'm just going to stay here in the attic and sleep it off. So the next morning he gets up, sees his wife, get the kids ready. He says, okay, I should probably get, get going. So he waits till his wife goes to work. He goes in the house. Shaves, showers, puts some stuff away, grabs some other things. Then he goes back to the attic. He's like, I don't feel like going to work. And he's got this real, you know, suburban ennui about him, right? Just this real boredom and dissatisfaction. And then he realizes, I don't want to go to work, and I don't want to see my wife now. What am I going to say the second night where we were last night? i got to explain everything. Well, I'll just stay in the attic. And now it's a couple days, and now it's three or four days, and now his wife calls the cops. And Cranston is still just living in the attic. And a few questions come to mind. A, how's he going to the bathroom? And so one scene, they kind of see him with like a makeshift toilet. But I'm like, already this is stretching credulity. I don't understand why you have a makeshift toilet in your attic. But all right. Food-wise, he's eating by going in the garbage. So he waits till his wife puts all the leftovers. And he literally is just eating on chicken bones and whatever leftover mashed potatoes or dumplings there may be. And I'm like, this guy went from just disenchanted, dissatisfied with his life. Fine. Unhappy marriage. Like I said, disconnect with his kids. So now I'm just going to live in the attic and ignore everybody and eat garbage. Cops come to the house and he's observing everything and a lot of it's voiceover. And this is what Dan and I've talked about. Show, don't tell. It's just a lot of Cranston's character telling what's going in his head. Because obviously he can't do anything because he's trapped in this attic. So it's just him telling you how he feels and how bitter he is with his wife. And look at the cops now. And then it goes into their backstory. And I'm sure it's an interesting short story. As soon as I looked it up, I said, this has to be based on some sort of literary work. And it is indeed because it's so internalized and so much of it is just monologue and so much of it is voiceover heavy. It just doesn't make a captivating movie. Uh, I think as a story, it's interesting. It probably taps into what a lot of people feel as far as angst in their, you know, middle class lives and marriages. But as a movie, disappointing. He just comes across as a really shallow egotist. I mean, he just abandons his wife and kids and then lives in an attic for months on end eventually like it, it comes around like in the winter and then there's this odd subplot with these special needs kids who happen to stumble upon him so they visit him in the attic and i'm like this story's going nowhere at this point now and you know the cops have obviously sent out the apb for it but nobody decides to check the attic until once his daughters go to find something in the attic because they're going to go take their summer vacation at cape cod but then he pretends that there's rats up in the attic like he puts his fingernails or his uh, fingers and thrums them against the door, and they go running away. And I'm like, that's it? 
you wouldn't just go back and you wouldn't just go tell mom, hey, listen, maybe there's a rat up there. Let's go up in the attic. He the movie does not give a timeline, but I'm telling you, he's up there at least six months. He lives an entire winter by eating garbage and just living in an attic all day. Reads books because you you might be wondering, do I miss television? Apparently not. Just sits there all day, just completely submerged in his own identity. So. And I'm getting to the, so by hour 20, because it's Crancy, he's such a good actor, he's, he's holding your attention, but there's only so much a great actor can do, ultimately, if the content and the plot is not there, even as he goes through these emotions of arrogance and anger and sorrow. So I'm like, as long as it's a great ending, maybe they can turn this thing around. And I won't give it away, but I will just say it's an ambiguous ending and one that was incredibly frustrating. And at that point, I said, all right, one and a half Maple Leafs. Like, I, I might have given it two and just said it's average, and if you're a Brian Cranston fan, it's worth it for his acting showcase about this guy in a midlife crisis, even though it's rather dull. But once the ending happened, I go, no, pass. That just enraged me. One and a half Maple Leafs for Wakefield. Did not do well at the box office. Maybe tough to find, but you may be able to find on demand as I did. Last one for you is The Journey. This is from director Nick Ham. It is the fictional account of two enemies in Northern Ireland, the Democratic Unionist Party leader Ian Paisley and Sinn Féin politician Martin McGuinness. Paisley is paid by Timothy Spall, We'll be coming up momentarily, and Comini plays the politician. And this is a apocryphal account of the 2006 St. Andrews Agreement, which brought peace to Northern Ireland. So it's this fictional conceit of these two guys sharing a car together, and it's a rather playful script, even though it has a lot of intelligence to it, and I'm sure it's based somewhat on fact. But the best way I can describe it is it's like Frost-Nixon involving the IRA. So if you haven't seen Frost Nixon, that movie pits David Frost, the British journalist, and a wonderful performance by Frank Langella playing Richard Nixon. And Ron Howard, excellent directing of that movie. But essentially, it's just a two-hander. It's two actors going toe-to-toe. Same thing with The Journey. You've got Spall. You've got Meany. They're stuck in a car together. And one guy is supportive of the IRA, and the other guy is supportive of the traditional politician's life and views the IRA as a bunch of terrorists. So, you know, they have some it's, – it's a very – predictable storyline that's following and at times it feels a little bit pedestrian because you know exactly where it's going to go you put these two opposites together and eventually they're going to get to some sort of an agreement and there's bickering and there's frustration and there's a little bit of humor in there but eventually they come to that resolution but the reason i like it is because of the performances just like with frost nixon if the two leads can carry the movie and in this case spall and Meany certainly do particularly spall he plays his character with such glowering energy and resentment uh that it ends up being a really enjoyable movie so check out the journey i'm giving it three maple leafs uh, once again, I Frost Nixon in terms of the IRA, excellent film, and Timothy Spall will join us now. A real pleasure to welcome in one of the best actors around. His name is Timothy Spall, and he stars in a wonderful new film called The Journey. As I described it earlier, I feel like it's Frost Nixon, but involving the IRA. Timothy, what was it about the material that attracted you to it? Because I think the... The beauty of it is your performance. You and Comedia together, that's what really makes this story sing. What was it for you? Oh, well, thank you. Well, I mean, it's a uh, profound story about a recent uh, thing that happened in Northern Ireland, which is part of the British Isles, which was a big political uh, you know, uh, conflict that caused more or less a civil war that was only in the last uh, 10 years, and because of this peace process, stopped. So... These two characters were, uh, you know, Ian Paisley uh, and uh, Martin McGuinness were representatives of the two absolute uh, extreme factions. Everybody else had fallen away, all the other, shall we say, more moderate voices. And these two guys were in a position, and it was only them who were going to have the power to make this peace uh, process work. 
And everybody, everybody thought it was hopeless because they were representatives of the extreme side. Uh, but this is a journey. This film is called The Journey because it's it's a, a take on what how this happened. These two in, implacable guys. How <laughs> not only did they end up stop being uh, arch enemies, they eventually became joint leaders of the country and friends. So it's about that. How conflict, how you know, um, impossible conflict can be resolved through the touching of humanity and a certain amount of the personal sacrifice and your performance is wonderful timothy you have such glowering energy and you know your character is just so uh, reluctant to make peace with komini's character because he views him as a part of this ira this terrorist organization they've killed all these women and children um yeah how, how, it must have been challenging for you because in playing that role you know the beats you have to play to get to the the end result that resolution but how much alienation hostility do you present throughout the movie well, I mean, the thing was, he was regarded. Uh, he was a very particular type of man. He was constantly on the news, shouting and barracking and uh, and, and and making terrible uh, what people used to call inflammatory noises to make the situation worse. He was very much a representative of his own people, but he was a feared and loathed figure. And he also was a man of the church. He was a, a, a fundamentally a, a, fund, a fundamental evangelical Protestant priest uh, who believed in spreading the word of God as well. And that, then that morphed into him becoming a, a very uh, powerful politician. So there was a lot of, um, uh, and he's a very particularly idiosyncratic man and much loved. So I always, was, uh, you know, I towed the kind of received wisdom for a lot and found him quite unpalatable at times. But then when I started to think about it for a little bit, just before I started to do the film and then looked into it, I, it was, I realized it was my job to, to divine and to delve into the intricacies, the, the, um, the, the, the vulnerabilities and the things that have made such an incredible man, who, let, who, who we find in this film, that in a sense, the structure of his resolve being loosened by the, by the opportunity that arrived itself with his arch enemy. So it was trying to, it was trying to play all of that unacceptable uh, public side that people found so ferociously, um, uh, you know, obstructive, and to find underneath it what was the human side, what is the, what is the, as we say, the the the, the, the child within, or whatever, or something that create, to create a deep and, and a more subtle uh, view than just an impersonation of a firebrand. And I found it quite an interesting process because I always, in a sense, it's often between me and the person I'm playing as a human being, despite any of the any of my own political persuasions, you know. Once again, I hope people check out The Journey. Timothy Spall playing Paisley, as you spoke of there, is wonderful in the film. We'll get to the Harry Potter and the other major movies, but I, I love the work you've done with Mike Lee, Timothy. Secrets and Lies oh, is a yeah. wonderful, wonderful film way back in 1996. I remember being blown away by that movie and the relationships with you and Brenda Blethyn. And Mr. Turner, the scene I want to ask you, but I love it so much. I know you won the Best Actor Award at the Cannes Film Festival, yeah. deservedly so. But the scene where Mr. Turner gets that red paint and just blotches it right in the middle of the painting and all everyone else thinks that he's ruining his painting yeah. instead he paints a buoy and to me that was almost an illustration of this guy who is so misunderstood and in many yeah. ways is a cad i mean talk about an unlikable character but there's yeah. brilliance in there right there's madness within all the unpleasantness well absolutely i mean that is based on a true story or uh, you know that was anecdotal evidence and it's written down that people were there because it happened in the royal academy 
And it was these, you know, these artists used to finish off their paintings in the Royal Academy before they showed them. And often there some people, particularly Turner, would turn up with a painting that didn't look like it made any sense. And then you would put one or two uh, touches in it and all of a sudden this one piece of work, this one added, and then he'd come and change it, turned it into a masterpiece. And it was often about a contest or a, a slight sort of um, a gauntlet thrown down to other artists. The thing that that uh, illustrates, tries to illustrate, is that he had this immense... Um, you know, uh, should we say, mysterious side and this mischievous side amongst this rather socially unacceptable side and this great love of the academy and this competition, this competitive side. But also, it just is an illustration of how, with one small touch, uh, someone can just put the finishing touches on a masterpiece. So it's about his cavalier quality and all that. So, yeah, I mean, but it's absolutely... um, uh, is a you know based on a, on on an actual event. It happened there and then. And and the, the little end of that story is that that that, that is called Hellefutzfaust. That painting, and it's about a red boy in a part of Holland. And I eventually, because I have a boat, I eventually went to that part of Holland and saw where that painting is. So it was like I took a little bit of a pilgrimage. So I, it's it was a nice. Um, you know, I, I I just took thousands of pictures of red boys that nobody wants to see because it's so boring. <laughs> no, it's a credit to you for making a movie about painting and making it so yeah. compelling. And, and like I said, those great films with Mike Lee, and those are obviously popular in the art house circuit on a worldwide level. And speaking mm-hmm. of worldwide behemoths, the Harry Potter phenomenon of which you have been a part of. Tell me your craziest story, Timothy. What, when, when did you realize this is a journey unlike any other when you're involved in the Harry Potter movies? Well, I mean, it didn't really come home to me, and it was afterwards. I mean, apart from going into, every time I went into work and get my teeth and my ears and my spots put all over my face and my ratty costume, <laughs> and seeing, like, every, like 20 examples of, 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 the, of the top notch of British theatre and cinema, you know, every day. It was very peculiar. Um, <laughs> I remember I was doing a film with Ed Harris. Uh, we were down in uh, Appaloosa. I went and did a little cameo for him in that. And we were staying in um, uh, uh, in uh, uh, New Mexico in a small hotel in Santa Fe. And a very nice uh, run by a Navajo hotel. And I got in the lift and there was a, a middle-aged uh, um, uh, couple in their sort of late 50s, uh, American-African couple, very sophisticated duo and I thought, oh, they must be, you know, politicians or something. And um, and the guy, I thought, they were very, very, you know, um, uh, distinguished looking couple. And the guy turned to me and said, oh my God, are you the rat dude from Harry Potter? (laughs) 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 This is is where I know that it's not just about... Uh, kids and my, you know, it is, it is a, this is a, this is a global phenomenon. You know what I mean? It was a very, very <laughs> so there we are. That's you know, it's uh, you know, it was one of those things where it's you know, it's it's a, you know, when you think of it, it's a, a, a book, a, a very nice child, but it's a book and it's a film, but it's become a huge phenomenon. It's almost become its own world, you know, and. I mean, you know, whatever, wherever, whatever side of it, whether you like it or not, one of the great things it does do is it is about literature and it is encouraging maybe a whole load of kids who might not have made that connection between literature and cinema 
to go back and read it. And, you know, and, and there's generations and generations. And now we'll, we'll do that, can make that connection. So anything that encourages kids, you know, to stop looking at screens and actually read a bit as well, I think, you know, reading them and then looking at the screens is a great thing. That's my old old dinosaur opinion anyway. Yeah, it doesn't matter if people read the books and then watch the movies or watch the movies and then are encouraged to read the books. Bottom line is literacy is being achieved, right? Well, I, this is what I would say. I'd say so, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, so, I mean, it's one of those bizarre, it, you know, and this is not me being ungrateful. It's in a sense, it's one of the kind of smallest parts of the play, but it's the one that's made me the globally famous for it. You know, I'm the right dude. <laughs> <laughs> you take whatever you can get. You've also appeared with Johnny Depp, you know, major American star in, the, yeah. in uh, Sweeney Todd. What was it like working yeah. with Johnny? Oh, well, he's uh, a very, 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 uh, you know, very, very, this uh, stick is the only the old English phrase I can use, a very, very nice guy, very, um, um, you know, uh, affable, very, um, you know, uh, you know, um, really just, you know, welcoming and, and, you know, I've had experience, you know, with, uh, you know, I worked with Tom Cruise a couple of times and, uh, and uh, you know, and Johnny. And it always strikes me two things. How, um, you know, uh, charming they are, given their status, how accessible, and also how knowledgeable are they are about other people's work. And then you realize, of course, these guys stay at the top because they actually um, keep their eye, their, their ear close to the ground and they watch and have a general interest in everything. It's not contrary to popular belief about all about them these guys are there and stay at the top because they are you know artists it's not all about stardom and about that side that we, we we would be easily misconstrued these guys work very very hard and they're very aware of their fan base as well as making quality work and and they're also given their you know status and their power they're very affable very charming, very bright guys and nice to be with. And, they, you know, they don't play any status games. They are really proper pros. And it's all, it's a, it's a, you know, I always tell people, it's never, it's never a chore to tell people how, you know, great these guys are, you know. Oh, it's very generous of you. Uh, I want to close with this. My mom grew up in England. All of my mom's family is still in London. Is there a yeah. better English expression, Timothy, than wanker? Uh, it it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Wanker's a good one. You can, if you get tired of that, Tosser's quite a good one. It has the same, it has the same principle. It, oh, you don't need much of an imagination to work out where it comes. But Tosser, yeah, yeah, they're all, they're all, they're all charming and mildly offensive in their own charming, quite old-fashioned English way. I just find whenever my cousins say it, we just erupt in laughter, and they say, well, "Don't be such a wanker, yeah." And I yeah, think it's, I know, I know, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a funny, inherently funny word, and charmingly offensive. I always <laughs> find it's one of my favourite words. As much I, I have a whole plethora of far worse words, which I won't be allowed to say to you. But there we are, and they're used regularly, <laughs> particularly in London, often. Often as a form of affection. <laughs> uh, no question. No question. The Journey is the film. It stars Timothy Spall. I encourage all of you to check it out. Timothy, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Nice to talk to you. A great night's sleep can help you have a great day. And I'm having a lot of great days because I get a great night's sleep every night on my Casper mattress. The Casper mattress was invented with two high-tech foams that gives you all the support you need and guarantees you get the best night's sleep ever. It ships for free in a box so small you won't believe it holds a mattress. It's easy to get you to your bedroom. And I love that Casper lets you try the mattress for 100 nights in your own home risk-free. They'll come pick it up if you don't love it as much as I love mine and refund you everything, no questions asked. 
From its breakthrough design to its packaging to letting you try it for 100 nights, it's no wonder Casper was named one of Fast Company's 50 most innovative brands of 2017. And believe me, sleeping on a mattress is the only way to try it. It beats lying on one in a store for just a few minutes. Get a Casper and get a great night's sleep every night like I do. Go to casper.com slash cinephile and use code cinephile, C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E, for $50 towards the purchase of your mattress. That's casper.com slash cinephile, code cinephile, and get $50 towards the purchase of your mattress. Casper.com. Terms and conditions apply. So we tried to get Jeffrey Tambor on the podcast. Tambor is responsible for two of my five favorite yeah, five favorite TV shows of all time. The Larry Sanders Show, which is my favorite comedy, and then Arrested Development is also in the top five. If you haven't seen either, please check them out. Hank Kingsley, his character, the sidekick to Gary Shandling's Larry Sanders on The Larry Sanders Show. And, of course, he played George Bluth and Oscar in Arrested Development. By the way, Jason Bateman recently tweeted, looks like I'm putting some more miles on the stair car. So Arrested Development Season 5 hopefully will be coming sooner rather than later, even though Season 4 was not great on Netflix. But... We put the ask up for Tambor. Unfortunately, he's too busy right now. His manager said, sorry, I can't help you out. But his book is terrific, and I recommend it to anybody. It's called Are You Anybody? A Memoir by Jeffrey Tambor. And there's just a few highlights I want to discuss here. One is a really inventive chapter called Short Answers to the Question, Wow, What's It Like to Be You? I talk to myself, which makes my children laugh at me. Flossing is one of my favorite pastimes. When I travel to another city, I rent a car and leave the hotel with no plan other than to get lost. It is not uncommon for people to think I'm Dr. Phil and thank me for all the good I'm doing. It is not uncommon for people to think I'm Larry David and to thank me for all the good I'm doing. My first thought in the morning is, oh, no. I masturbate using Pornhub.com. My doctor in Los Angeles says it actually helps the prostate. Not Pornhub per se, but the actual act of masturbation. Hi, Dr. Biscow. People think I'm the man on the subway in Ghost. That was Vincent Schiavelli. R.I.P. I have a huge fear of being fat. Anthony Lane of The New Yorker in his review of the film Pollock called me the fleshy Jeffrey Tambor. I love Van Morrison. I think he might be the same person. I love to wave at people I don't know while I'm driving. I love to grocery shop. I am not averse to doing funny walks and false limps in the aisles. <laughs> the Church of Scientology keeps trying to find me. They called my New York number two nights ago. If you get a call from the 323 area code, my advice is let it go to voicemail. Jeffrey Tamworth, just such random thoughts. I'm alive because of daydreaming. Such a funny chapter. He actually talks about his career, how he got into acting. He's a real late bloomer. He says he remembers a fortune teller telling him very young. You're going to have a successful career, but it's going to happen for you late in life. He finally won an Emmy, of course, for Transparent. Larry Sanders' show was his first big break, huge hit for him, but that was when he was in his 50s. Arrested Development, if you can believe it, came in his 60s. Prior to that, he did work with the great Al Pacino in Injustice for All. He mentions that in his top 12 most embarrassing moments, number 12. During a scene with Al Pacino in Injustice for All, I had my first close-up. When Norman Jewison yelled, action, Al smooshed his face up against the side of the camera. I didn't know he was supposed to do that so that my eyes would be looking as neatly into the camera as possible. I thought he was goofing around, and I laughed. At Al Pacino. Rather embarrassing. One of his more interesting chapters is, I can't actually say the word. He's saying F him, so we'll just say screw him. But basically he says that is a philosophy for all actors. And he explains the great Richard Burton, when he was doing Hamlet on Broadway, would stand behind the curtain and start insulting the audience. And as the cast was taking their places, they couldn't help but notice. Finally, someone asked him, Sir Richard, what are you doing? And Burton said, I'm preparing. 
He was trying to remove himself from the audience's thrall, to be consumed by the need to please, the need for people to like you, to like your work. It is like being under a spell. That's certainly what it felt like at the beginning of my career. I was always asking myself, is this the right posture? Is this the right line reading? The right costume? The right prop? The right time? The right entrance? The crazy part is the audience doesn't know you're in their thrall. You're in thrall to no one and nothing, to something that doesn't even exist. And that thrall is the death of spontaneity and invention. And so he thinks one of the keys to the kingdom, one of the keys to acting is screw them. Do not think about the audience. Do not think about what they think about you. Uh, he mentions one to me, went to, <laughs> to a restaurant, and the maitre d' said, may I help you? He did not make a reservation ahead of time. He was there with his mother, his daughter. He said, yes, I would like the worst table you have, and I would like to wait as inor- inordinately long as possible. That little bit of screw you attitude. There was a pause, the barest hint of a smile from maitre d' right this way, Mr. Tambor. He mentions other examples of where Picasso is an old man posing shirtless for a photo, proud as hell of who he is, what he's done in this world. He's the handsomest man around. It's an attitude. It's confidence. It's the way you have to live. Screw him. I don't care what the cast thinks. I don't care what the actors think about me. Uh, he mentions one time, <laughs> this is an interesting one. He's waiting. This is for a commercial. Tambor, a great voice. There's a lot of voice work. And he said while he's waiting out in the hall, he's reading his Kindle, and he sees this man coming out the elevator heading in my direction, very zenyed and quaffed and becuffed. He did not seem the sunniest of people. Ah, this must be the big boss you've been waiting for, I thought. As he passed me heading for the studio, I said to him, uh-oh, you're in trouble. He stopped and glanced at me. He didn't smile or react in any way. He wasn't giving anything away. He walked into the room. I stayed in the hallway a little longer, just a few moments more than I should. Then I entered the room. We began the recording session. The big boss gave me nothing. I wasn't Jeffrey Tambor. I was just talent. But because of our initial meeting in the hallway, something, some chemistry, some relationship, some code had changed. Then this happened. About 15 minutes into the session, I suggested a change in the script. Excuse me, but I think it would be better if it went like this, I said. Big pause. Everybody turned to look at the big boss. Apparently, no one talked to the big boss like this. And then he nodded yes. His expression never changed. It was all because of that slight effem greeting in the corridor. It changed the room. He listened to me. We had a great session. But that's not all. After I left that day, the boss apparently said some nice things, and I believe it paved the way to do a very lucrative two-part commercial. That and a huge amount of hummus was sent to the house. So he gives all these examples, and he tells you the one time it did not work, and that was while auditioning for the Cone Brothers, a movie called A Serious Man. Always wanted to be in a Cone Brothers film. On the day of my audition, I drove to Sony Pictures. I stopped at the gate and told the guard I have a drive-on, which means I had to pass a drive-on of the property and right up to the office where the audition was. The guard said I did not have a drive-on and directed me to the parking structure, which was about a mile from the office. I thought, if I have to walk a mile to get to this audition, I'm not going to get the part. It was too subservient. Screw him. Okay, I said to the guard, and waited until he averted his eyes, and I drove around the barrier all the way up to the office. There was an empty space right in front, but there was one of those orange cones in it. I got out of my car, moved the cone, and parked. I was a little early, and I went inside to wait. The casting director arrived. First, she gave me a strange look and sat down. Then the Cone brothers came in. We're ready to go. I've been asked to prepare for two different roles, a rabbi and a lawyer. One of the brothers asked me, which role do you want to read first? Casting director was sitting behind them with a look on her face like she was working at a math problem. I looked at the brothers, then down at my script. I made a decision right then. To this day, I don't know why I said what I said. I think I'm going to read the rabbi. With the lawyer, you can do better. What I meant was, I didn't like the part of the lawyer, and you can do better. The room stopped as though someone had poured jello into it. The brothers looked at each other. I could tell this was a virgin moment for them. No actor had ever said anything like that to them. As the casting director, at that moment, she put two and two together and thought, yeah, that's the jerk in my parking space. She threw up her arms like a mafia chieftain as if to say, oh, my God, what have you done? Casting directors get the flack when an audition doesn't go well, and I had just crapped the bed. 
I didn't get the role of the rabbi. That went to Alan Mandel. And the lawyer, I was right. They could do better than cast me, and they did. They cast Adam Arkin, and he was wonderful, so much better than I could have done it. And I'm pretty sure the casting director clocked me getting into my car in her parking space and leaving. More stories, of course, if you want to read the book about the Larry Sanders show, Gary Shandling, as he refers to him, the kindest of geniuses, his audition for it, the chances he took, why that show was so special for him. Uh, George Bluth, how originally it was supposed to be a walk-on. He goes to the same coffee shop as Mitchell Hurwitz, who is the creator. He had told him about this Arrested Development show, said, I just need you for a small part. You'll just be in the pilot. And then George is gone. He was so great in it. Mitch goes, hey, do you want to do the whole season? He said, of course I do. Uh, the character of Oscar Bluth came about because one time they had to do a flashback of George with hair, and he put the wig on, and Mitch goes, hey, maybe we can do a twin brother for you. Perfect. Uh, he has such strong words for Mitch Hurwitz and for Jason Bateman and the entire cast. He's just had so much fun doing it. And he comes across as a very humble, genuine guy who appreciates this uh, late success he's had in his career. All right, so once again, the book is called Are You Anybody? A Memoir by Jeffrey Tambor. I'm giving away my copy of the book. I'd love to tell you it's an autographed copy by Jeffrey Tambor, but no, uh, it's just my book. I think it's a really good book. I want to give it away to somebody. So tweet us, Cinephile ESPN, C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E ESPN, and real easy, just tell me what Hank Kingsley's catchphrase was from The Larry Sanders Show. Hank Kingsley's catchphrase from The Larry Sanders Show. I thought about the rest development one, but there's two of them. There's no touching, and there's always money in the banana stand. So I'll make it easy for you. Just give me The Larry Sanders Show, and it's real easy. And you can get your copy of a free book. Streaming suggestions. Currently available on Hulu. I'm not a huge Richard Gere fan. American Gigolo, I think, is terrific. Primal Fear, we all know Edward Norton was the star of that film, not Gear. But Arbitrage is a really good movie. If you haven't seen it, it came out a couple of years ago. It's now available on Hulu. I think it's one of Richard Gere's best performances. It's a drama-slash-thriller as he's caught up in the financial industry. I was really surprised how good he was and how good the film was. The freshman, Marlon Brando, sending up the character of The Godfather. I've talked a lot about The Godfather here on Cinephile. In The Freshman, <laughs> Matthew Broderick is amazed because, he goes, oh, my God, that guy looks just like Don Corleone. And his resemblance to The Godfather, because, of course, it's Marlon Brando, is played for laughs. Really good script by uh, Andrew Bergman, who also wrote Honeymoon in Vegas. Ides of March is a movie I really like a lot. People often ask me what are movies you think should have done better than they uh, did. And that's one that I mentioned. George Clooney directed it. Um, it was nominated for screenplay. That was the only Oscar nomination. I thought Gosling was excellent. I love the supporting cast. Seymour Hoffman was amazing. Uh, I love Paul Giamatti, of course. He's one of my favorite actors. I thought um, the whole cast really good. Clooney was very good playing uh, the villain as the politician in the film. Marissa Tomei was excellent. Evan Rachel Wood. I really like The Ides of March. Uh, hopefully you can check it out if you haven't seen it on Hulu. Really smart drama involved in the political underworld. Also available on Amazon Prime, Apocalypse Now, one of the great war films of all time. If you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor and check it out and find out why so many revere that film. As Francis Ford Coppola famously said, my film is not about Vietnam. It is Vietnam. Co-shared the award at uh, the Cannes Film Festival that year, and Coppola was furious because apparently it said, I'm only bringing the movie to Cannes if I win. So when he was the co-winner, he was furious. The, the megalomania of Coppola on Apocalypse Now is also well-documented in a documentary called Hearts of Darkness, which is amazing if you want to see that as a companion piece. A lot of people are talking about um, the return of Twin Peaks, a TV show I did not see, but I can tell you David Lynch, one of his best films, is called Blue Velvet. That's available on Amazon Prime. Dennis Hopper, one of his best movies ever, playing the chilling villain, just a bizarre film, probably the essence of when people talk about Lynchian and they just mean strange, eccentric worlds. 
like Twin Peaks. Blue Velvet is a great example of that. Isabella Rossellini plays the lead role in that film. And Magnolia, one of P.T. Anderson's best films, an epic. Even he candidly admits, um, as he did recently to Mark Maron on his podcast, that it is too long. He goes, God, it is way too long. It's a three-hour film. Uh, but I love the cast in that film. I just love the audacity of the movie. Um, he explains in that Marin podcast the reason why there's frogs falling from the skies because that's what he felt like when he heard that his dad passed. So he put that in the movie. There's a lot of personal anecdotes that P.T. Anderson put in there himself. But Tom Cruise, one of his best performances, the whole cast, amazing. Philip Seymour Hoffman, John C. Riley, Julianne Moore, Philip Baker Hall, a lot of the characters you'd normally expect and actors you'd expect from P.T. Anderson films. Also available on Netflix, Full Metal Jacket. Mike Golick agrees with me. First hour is incredible. Vincent D'Onofrio never been better. It's Arlie, Ermey, and him going toe-to-toe. He's the psychotic drill sergeant who's also incredibly funny because he's just so vulgar and foul-mouthed along with being sadistic, and he just makes life living hell for poor Vincent D'Onofrio. But the second hour I just find is so disjointed and just a real mishmash and all over the place. It's so strange. When people ask me my favorite Stanley Kubrick movies, I often stump them by saying the first hour of Full Metal Jacket which then throws them for a loop. My Left Foot, Daniel Day-Lewis, if you've never seen it, first film that won him the Best Academy Award. He plays uh, the painter, Christy Brown, a marvel of physical acting. Day-Lewis in that movie. Brenda Fricker, also very good, playing his mom. And Young Frankenstein, one of my favorite comedies, Mel Brooks, absolute stud, and one of his most beloved films, Gene Wilder, Peter Boyle, the entire cast, so funny in Young Frankenstein. That's Frankenstein. Actor Showcase. Thanks to Kathy Leogrand, who got me a subscription to The Hollywood Reporter. Recently was an excellent article, profile of Johnny Depp and how he squandered all of his wealth. It's a, it's a, Listen, Johnny Depp is a wonderful actor, and he's been in a lot of great films, but I don't have to tell you about the personal issues he's had off-camera recently with terms of you know alleged spousal abuse. And, and this article really does a deep dive into all his uh, financial spending. It is... It is uh, Awfully tough to reconcile, but I listen, the life of a movie star, you can do whatever you want. So as an actor is what I'm going to focus on. I don't really care about the personal lives because Johnny Depp has been a great actor for a long time. And apologies, the tourist will not be making the list. Uh, Chocolat is not making the list. The Lone Ranger is not making the list. Mordecai is not making the list. I mean, for a really talented actor, he's made a lot of bad movies. Let's make that very clear. Don Juan DeMarco is not making the list. By the way, my buddy Dan Stanzik recently tweeted out, and I want everyone to let, you know, give us your opinion, Cinephile ESPN. He ran five miles shirtless. Is that a jerk move? Is that not a jerk move? Or is that only a jerk move because he mentioned the distance? Well, by the way, Dan, was the result of that? What was the runaway leader? Jerk move. Okay. It was A and C. Jerk move yeah. and jerk move because I mentioned the distance. Yeah, I think C should have been the winner, but let us know what you think. Don Juan DeMarco, our very own Dan Stanzik. Number five, Edward Scissorhands. One of the best collaborations that he made with Tim Burton, a movie that really, I think, looks at adolescence in a really unique manner. And it draws upon the peculiar vision of Burton and the unique skills of Johnny Depp in a way that was really tough to do. I mean, think about Greenlight in that movie. Wait, it's a guy, he's got scissor hands? Like, what? But it's funny and sweet and tender and and really well done and well rendered by both of them, Burton and Depp. That's number five. Number four is Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. This is a movie that was not well received by critics. I'm sure the Rotten Tomatoes rating, I haven't checked it recently, but I remember a lot of critics did not like it. But I think it's wonderful. I thought he was so good in the movie at playing Hunter S. Thompson, who was a close friend of his, and just the way he talks like that, kind of all over the place, and the the cigarette dangling from his lip, and all the the drug-induced images and montages, Terry Gilliam. I mean, that is, Hunter S. Thompson was what? 
gonzo journalism, and I thought Johnny Depp gave a gonzo performance in the movie. So I really like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Number three is Gilbert Grape. I thought he was very measured and uh, studied in this film. Lasse Hallstrom, director. Uh, of course, Leonardo DiCaprio was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for the film, and he stole a lot of the uh, rave reviews for it, but I thought Depp was really good in Gilbert Grape. Number two is Ed Wood. He's wonderful in this movie, playing the worst director of all time, Plan 9 from Outer Space. He's got that devilish grin on his face all the time. He's a guy who likes to dress up in Angora sweaters, and yet you have to love him because he may not have any talent, but he has such passion for filmmaking, and he loves movies so much, and he wishes he could just make great cinema like all of his heroes like Orson Welles did. I love the movie Ed Wood. Tim Burton, I think it's their best movie together. And number one is Donnie Brasco. Uh, Al Pacino is often asked his favorite actors of younger actors, and he says, oh, Johnny's crazy. He's apparently Johnny Depp and Pacino had a wonderful time making Donnie Brasco. I thought he was amazing. You know, that that's a genre that's been really well-tread in terms of FBI agents and getting caught up in the criminal underworld. And Deep Cover's a really good movie that explored the similar terrain, Lawrence Fishburne and Jeff Goldblum. But I thought Depp was amazing. Uh, the scene where he tells Anne Hayes, like, you understand, if I get out of this, this guy left, he dies, and that's because of me. He really shows um, how conscience-stricken his character is and how genuine and sweet he is and the affection that he has for Lefty Ruggiero while still trying to complete his job as law enforcement. My top five Johnny Depp movies, Donnie Brasco, Ed Wood, Gilbert Grape, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Edward Scissorhands, Dan is furious that Pirates of the Caribbean did not make the top five. I actually wasn't going to bring that up, but now that you mention it, that is one that you left off and the one he's probably most known for. But I'm upset that you didn't mention Blow. Not crazy about Blow. I think it's all right. He's good in it, but disappointing overall. Okay, I did just come back from Columbia, so it had to be mentioned. <laughs> and you also left off Finding Neverland, where he plays J.M. Barry, the author of Peter Pan, Kate Winslet, Oscar-nominated. You hated it. Got it. Noted. <laughs> Let's move on. Johnny Depp, let us do your favorite five films. And more uh, Columbia Adventures from Dan next time. Blow, Blow I remember, I had one of the great trailers because I remember people were like, man, this movie looks so awesome. Drugs and Depp and Ray Liotta's playing his dad. Ted Demi's the director, and you watch it, and you go, really? That's all there is to it? Underwhelming blow for me. And Finding Neverland, yes, not, not one of my personal favorites. A Scorsese story. So often I find if you revisit a movie, you don't like it as much. Because generally, if you didn't like a movie when you first saw it, why would you watch it again? So sometimes you may have loved a movie as an adolescent. You go back, watch it again, and you go, eh, maybe it wasn't as great as I thought. But Adrian Eldrelte, who is uh, one of the friends of Cinephile, had tweeted me and said, I want you to talk about After Hours as one of my favorite Scorsese movies. And I said, all right. I've always thought of it as one of my least favorite Scorsese movies, but I'll give it another chance. And surprise, surprise, I liked it. The backstory to it is it came out in 1985. Scorsese's passion project was The Last Temptation of Christ, long before silence even entered his brain. And he'd wanted to adapt the Nikos Kazantakis novel. And he was hoping to make it in the 80s, coming off The King of Comedy, which was unfortunately a huge bomb. Revisionist history, now people realize how great and funny that movie is. But it was a huge bomb. So Last Temptation of Christ was really tough to get financing together. Eventually, the financing fell through. So he was absolutely devastated. His dream project had fallen apart. And he said, all right, let me just make something quick and dirty. It's the equivalent of just fast food. Let me just get my filmmaking skills, muscles working, you know, rather than having them atrophy, let me just get going and get moving. So he picked this film called After Hours, and it's written by Joseph Minion, really sharp script, and it's about Griffin Dunn, who is this computer programmer who just has this crazy night from hell in New York City. And it's awfully dated now watching. It's a set back in 1985. But what you notice about it is the energy. Michael Balhaus was the cinematographer. I've talked about Balhaus previously on Cinephile, recently passed away. 
Uh, this is one of his first collaborations with Scorsese, and the, the camera work is just so frenetic. It's amazing. Uh, what is really notable about After Hours is the way Scorsese uses the camera work to identify with the main character because he himself is jittery and neurotic and he cannot escape this nightmarish vision of New York City in this awful night. And so the camera's constantly moving and trying to uh, establish that sense of anguish. And they really do an effective job of doing that. But basically, Griffin Dunn, he's, he's out on the town. He meets a girl, Patricia Arquette, goes back to meet her at the apartment. One thing leads to another. She's kind of strange. And then off he goes. And he only has 20 bucks on him. The 20 bucks flies out of his uh, hand in the cab that he's taking to go meet Patricia Arquette. This is, of course, before Interact and debit cards and all the rest of it. So he's got no money. And then, like I said, it really takes some dark, dark detours. Eventually, goes to this bar where he meets John Hurd. He tells him that his girlfriend just died. There's a connection there to Griffin Dunn. He just wants to get back in his cab and get home, but he's got no money. Terry Garr plays this waitress down on her luck. He's then being chased by a couple of Nazis. I mean, there's there's just all sorts of stuff going all over the place. And why I mention it is this. It's never going to be mentioned in Scorsese's best films, but it is important in that it kind of helped rehab him because after Last Temptation of Christ fell apart, he needed to make a film quick and dirty, and After Hours was that movie for him. And at the very least, it's one of Scorsese's shortest movies. It's only 92 minutes, which is shocking now, considering, you know, Gangs of New York is 252 and Silence was 235 and Casino is three hours long. After Hours, a 92-minute Scorsese movie, which is a really dark comedy. Uh, I even hesitate to call it a comedy because at times it's just it's just, just, just dark. Uh, but there is definitely elements of humor in it. And there's a, a playfulness about it, which is nice to see from Scorsese. doesn't have any of the actors you'd normally associate with this films. There's no De Niro. There's no Pesci. Obviously, there's no DiCaprio. You know, you've got all these guys, like I said, uh, Griffin Dunn and John Hurd and Rosanna Arquette and Terry Garr. And it's almost as if they're just there, a one-off for Scorsese. But he ends up making an entertaining movie from it. And I like the ending. He actually had to get Steven Spielberg's advice in the ending. He goes, how do I end this movie? He goes, well, what, it's just a movie about a guy stuck after hours one night in New York trying to get home. And he goes, all right, well, why don't you start it back from the beginning? So Spielberg actually gave him advice on to end the movie. And I thought it was a pretty clever way of doing it. Also, uh, <laughs> Cheech Marin is in the movie. Like, like I said, it really stands out from Scorsese's oeuvre because it's not the actors or storylines you'd expect. But definitely check out After Hours. I liked it, especially more than I thought I would. Next time on Cinephile, we'll do a little more TV shows because I've been watching Better Call Saul, which is about to wrap. Fargo is about to wrap season three. Hopefully some more new movies. We're hoping to have a couple of really good guests as well. So thank you, as always, for checking out Cinephile. Give us some love on iTunes, Cinephile ESPN on Instagram and on Twitter. And until then, I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Firk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app.